Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Tuesday the 8th of December. Today, Gordon Brown tells The Guardian he'll press for drastic cuts in the EU's carbon emissions in an effort to secure agreement at climate talks in Copenhagen. Uh, I want to create a situation in which the European Union is persuaded to go to 30%. So too is Australia persuaded to go to a higher range. So too, therefore, are all the countries that have said they have set, set ranges they've got to be persuaded to go to this higher level. So it's a responsibility on them and also on other countries who've not got these ranges of ambition at the moment. Also today, how bankers are responding to Alistair Darling's plans for a windfall tax on their bonuses. They're now saying, well, you know, bumper year means bumper profits, bumper bonuses, and we need to reward our staff properly. It's no wonder that the public is angry. The Cumbrian town of Workington is reunited by a new footbridge named after the policeman killed in last month's floods. We're so lucky that this bridge has been built in such short notice. You know, the, the army have been wonderful. An experimental drug is due to be used today in Ohio to execute a killer. The worst that can happen in a sense is, you, you know, you're not sufficiently put over the edge, but even so, you'll be fast asleep. And the winner of this year's Turner Prize. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. First, Bill Overton's got the news headlines. Gordon Brown wants the European Union to aim for deeper cuts in carbon emissions than they've agreed to so far, 30% instead of 20% by 2020. The Prime Minister told The Guardian he wants countries now attending the Climate Change Summit in Copenhagen to be as ambitious as they say they want to be. The United States Environmental Protection Agency's ruled greenhouse gases do endanger human health. This means the agency can introduce regulations to control emissions without legislation having to go through Congress. President Obama has had political problems in persuading politicians to introduce new green laws. Back in Britain, the Independent Climate Change Committee says there have to be curbs on air travel. It wants a ban on expansion of regional airports and heavy taxes on passengers. It says otherwise air travel will increase by 200% in the next 40 years. A parliamentary committee is attacking the agency running the immigration system. The Home Affairs Committee says it's astonishing that staff at the UK border agency were paid nearly £300,000 in bonuses when files were being simply abandoned. The Commons investigators found more than 80,000 files dealing with asylum contained errors. In many cases, the agency admitted they just didn't know what had happened to asylum seekers. The council in Poole, Dorset, have replaced their controversial fake Christmas tree. Vandals attacked the tree, which people said looked like a huge traffic cone. A real fir tree is now being put up in its place. Our paper's exclusive interview with Gordon Brown, of course, appears on the front page this morning, but the lead is given to a report that Alistair Darling will hit the bankers personally in his pre-budget report tomorrow. One-off shock tax to break the bonus culture, says the headline, which will be aimed at thousands of bank workers getting bonuses above a fixed rate. We also report the 100th British soldier killed in Afghanistan this year. The Times and the Telegraph also print a front-page billboard, including the pictures of all the dead combatants. One year, one war, 100 lives, is the Times caption. The Telegraph reports an army chief saying we must steal ourselves. The Mirror writes about our 100th hero, which it calls a tragic milestone. The Times gives its lead to the Committee on Climate Change, which also decided Heathrow can have a third runway without jeopardising the government's carbon emissions target. The Express is furious about the immigration boss's £300,000 bonuses, and the Mail, following the inquiry into the Iraq war, asks, was Iraqi cabbie source of the dodgy dossier? It says the driver was an unlikely agent who told MI6 that Saddam Hussein had lethal chemical weapons.
Finally, sport and on many back pages reports that Manchester United has so many injured players, Alex Ferguson's having to use the boss's son as a replacement. But the son puts its sports story on the front page. Yes, it's another day, another girl. For Tiger Woods this time, Tiger and the porn star. There's more news and sport throughout the day at guardian.co.uk. Gordon Brown has been discussing Britain's approach to the crucial climate talks in Copenhagen. In an interview at Downing Street, the Guardian's deputy editor Ian Catt asked the Prime Minister how close we are to a deal. Well, there's four big issues that are going to be resolved in the next six months so that we have a truly global society. One is obviously the economic recession, another is uh, nuclear weapons, the third is terrorism, and the fourth is climate change. But I think climate change is the most... um, comprehensive of all the challenges that the world faces because this cannot be solved without every country and every continent being prepared to work together. And and which countries do you now think are the biggest obstacles to a deal? I think it's uh, the European Union has has made made an offer of uh, 20% cuts by 2020. They have said they're prepared to go to 30% if there's an ambitious deal. Uh, I want to create a situation in which the European Union is persuaded to go to 30%. So too is Australia persuaded to go to a higher range. So too is Brazil persuaded to go to a higher range. So too, therefore, are all the countries that have said they have set, set ranges. They've got to be persuaded to go to this higher level. So it's a responsibility on them and also on other countries who've not got these ranges of ambition at the moment. So it's, it's, it's a mutual decision uh, that we've both got to, but, well, both those who have created ranges and those who have not, that we've got to be more ambitious. But to be clear, you would like the EU to move unilaterally to 30% to, as a, to lead the way? I would like the EU to be persuaded that to go to 30% is the right thing to do. Uh, and I hope that we'll be able to say that it's the right decision of all the member states of the European Union that we go to 30%. But at the moment, we are negotiating. Uh, and it would be rather silly for the European Union to say that irrespective of what happens, it's going to do X. It's got to say, look, we want to do this. We are trying to do this. We are actually willing and prepared to do this. But we want to see the rest of the world moving moving with us. There are some people who think that the, the fact that it's come to this, that we have these 14 days now, that, as you've said, are a sort of make-or-break moment, reflects the fact that for 20 years we've absolutely failed to engage with this subject. And some people who say that this represents the greatest failure of leadership uh, of the modern era. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, if we can get no agreement and if the talks break down, it will be a huge failure of leadership. What about the last 20 uh, remember, years? Remember, well, remember at Kyoto, we, we all tried uh, and we couldn't get some countries on board. And in the end, it was an imperfect uh, agreement. The issue is to prove that there is a shared view of what should happen uh, to build a shared agreement about what each country can do over the next uh, 10 years as well as over the next uh, 40 years. And it's probably more important what we do over the next 10 years because it signals real determination to achieve it. Then we'll have to build the institutions for that global society to deal with climate change problems. And that will include a finance, financing organization and a verification uh, mechanism. So all these things are a challenge of uh, leadership. And I, I, I don't believe... Uh, that uh, the ambitions for Copenhagen uh, are so limited that we can't do all these things. Can I ask you a more personal question? Um, (laughs) Because you've obviously taken on quite a leadership role internationally in the run-up to Copenhagen. You've made uh, a lot of the arguments for leaders to go there. As we've just talked about, you've made a lot of the arguments on finance. And yet I'm struck by the fact that even two or three years ago, um, when people like me talked to your colleagues, um, they said that 
climate change was not something that was front and centre of your radar, notwithstanding the Stern report. Can I kind of let me just oh, finish, get yeah, the question yeah. out? And, and I recall sitting and talking to you um, on the eve of your going into Downing Street when you gave a, a wonderful um, sort of uh, tour of your view of the biggest issues facing mm. Britain. And I was very struck at the time that climate change wasn't on that list. It wasn't on your sort of number one priority list. Now, no one disputes where you are now. I think everyone can see that you're, you're deadly mm. serious about it, even passionate about it. I just wonder if you recognise that uh, you appear to have come quite late to the party, and I wonder... I think, I think, if I may say so, it's the other way around. I, I gave a speech many years ago and uh, have put it at the centrepiece of what I say about the economy and social justice, that since 1945 governments, particularly uh, social democratic or left-of-centre governments, have said that their objectives are economic growth and social justice. And these essentially were the two objectives by which, uh, if you like, uh, left-of-centre politics were defined. And I said, uh, I don't know if it was 10 years ago, but I said, look, you've got to think of it in, 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 as a trinity of objectives now. You've got to think of economic progress, social justice and environmental care. And that means you've got to look at how you can achieve economic and social progress in a world where you have responsibilities uh, to the environment, the stewardship of the environment for this and for future generations. Gordon Brown talking to Ian Katz. And there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on The Guardian's website today. I'm James Randerson, editor of environmentguardian.co.uk. On the site today, you can find our interactive guide to the Copenhagen Summit the people, the countries and the issues that are at stake. All the next two weeks we'll be covering the summit in depth with news stories, comment, blogs, video and audio from Copenhagen. All that at environmentguardian.co.uk. The town of Workington was cut in two by last month's severe floods, which destroyed or rendered unusable all bridges across the River Derwent. Now, a new footbridge has been opened. It was built by soldiers in just a week, and it's been named after PC Bill Barker, the policeman who lost his life trying to direct traffic in the floods. Martin Wainwright reports. All right, we've got the first um, bus load of children, I think, arriving now. Well, we've been going into town, it hasn't been too much hassle because you can just get the train across, just walk down to the station, but getting the bus to school last week has been like horrendous. How, how long is it? Two hours? Two hours, one and a half hours. Every yeah. Day. If you go at about six, seven o'clock at night, it takes about 30 minutes, but in the morning it takes like two hours because of all the traffic. Yeah. You get stuck at about the Dovenby ship. But I only live up there, so I can just walk down, but yeah. obviously today it's like pit raining a lot. So. That was Jordan Taylor, who's 15, um, and has got the bus, and the kids are coming off the bus now. The first lot of kids are lining up in a crocodile. Well, we're so lucky that this bridge has been built in sh- at such short notice, you know, that the army have been wonderful. Um, it, it's something that's never happened in Workington before. It's such a, a, a wonderful occasion, and uh, too good to miss really yeah um, and i gather you you, you because you're not a school child <laughs> <laughs> nor, nor am i <laughs> yeah. um you, you we're not allowed across yet i gather um no. from what the colonel was just saying yeah. is, is that right we've got to wait until later on yeah when you consider other parts of the country people travel to work it takes an hour and a half but in this part of the world we, we, we're used to the access i've just come to the bridge itself and there's a, a group of soldiers here who i guess have been uh, building this um, in record time I mean it's taken you about a week obviously the engineers coupled with the uh, Royal Logistics Corps 
and the 4th Battalion of Duke of Lancaster Regiment uh, have been here supervising the, the, the build of the bridge in, in some sort of capacity. Oh, is that the TA one? Or yes, 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 4th yes. Battalion, yes. Yeah, well, I'm actually a self-employed tree surgeon. I travel from one side to the other. I've had to put a few jobs off to actually work my way around. And I know, I know people in the local area, they have horses on the other side of the bridge. So they have to get over to feed them and look after them? to feed the horses. A lot of them are kids going to, you know, say to their horses each day. So there they go. And there's another school bus coming now. So that's Workington Reunited. It's this morning, it's only the children who are going across. The rest of us are going to have to wait probably till later in the day when they're doing an assessment uh, of the bridge. Martin Wainwright reporting. Amid rising public anger at the banks, the Chancellor, Alistair Darling, is planning to impose a one-off tax on bankers' bonuses in tomorrow's pre-budget report. Our business editor, Deborah Hargreaves, has the details. Every single person you meet is hopping mad about bankers' bonuses and the bankers just don't seem to get it. There are people losing their jobs in this recession caused by bank excesses and banks have now had a very good year largely because of the government bailout and because there are fewer of them so there's less competition and they're now saying, well, you know, bumper year means bumper profits, bumper bonuses and we need to reward our staff properly. It's no wonder that the public is angry. What are the banks going to do faced with this? This one-off super tax. Well, already it seems that given rumours about this surfacing in the press at the weekend, bankers have started calling their lawyers saying, is this tax constitutional? Does it infringe their human rights? Can we draft bonuses in a way that class them as income? Can we get round it in any way? And bankers have been saying they might just leave Britain altogether. Well, of course, this is always a threat that people will move out of the city, they will go to the US, they will go to Switzerland, they'll go to Dubai, no taxes at all in Dubai. (laughs) And um, there are some rumours in the city that various Swiss cantons have been producing promotional videos to attract bankers to Switzerland, where the tax rate on bonuses there will be 38% as opposed to a possible 70% here. But all in all, we're gearing up to quite a mighty confrontation, really, between the banks and the government. We are. And it seems that Darling wants to affect cultural change in the city. He wants the city to change its ways. I'm not sure this is actually going to happen. How do you change a culture which is so impervious to criticism? But we're obviously shaping up for a very interesting few months. Deborah Hargreaves. Richard Wright was named last night as the winner of this year's Turner Prize. The Guardian went to Tate Britain to hear the announcement of the 25th winner of Britain's most prestigious award for contemporary art. It gives me huge pride and pleasure to reveal that the winner of the 2009 Turner Prize is Richard Wright. Richard Wright, the 49-year-old who lives in Glasgow, wins the Turner Prize for 2009. This work is probably one of the more complex things that I have done, and my relationship... My work, you know, people, I always talk about my work in relation to the space, to architecture and, 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 and so on, but architecture isn't just the four walls, you know, the, the volume. It's, it's also something emotional, something unseen, something suggested. When I came here, I had you know, ten things I, I was thinking about my, doing, and a, a fragment of this work was 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 one of those things in my 
bag of things, if you like. And in the end, it was the piece that, looking around the museum more than the architecture, looking around what's here, um, that came to the rose to the top for me. And it's made in a very primitive, basic way. I mean, I put a piece of paper on the floor and start drawing things, and you know, I photocopy the drawings and cut them up and put other things. You know, together and extend the work from quite basic processes, really folding, unfolding, opening I, the, 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 the thing up. And then I transfer parts of the drawing by piercing the paper with holes and rubbing chalk. And it's a technique that Michelangelo used that has been used for, you know, five or six hundred years, you know, and it's, it's pretty old. We're really delighted, actually. Um, and when we kind of sat down after making the decision, we thought, well, how are we going to try and sum it up? Why, why Richard Wright? And in the end, we just all felt that it was because it was a really beautiful work of art. Uh, and it's not just the work of art you see on the wall. It's the relationship of the work to the space as a whole. It's a kind of intervention that is not uh, a violent intervention in a way that, say, a graffiti artist might make, but, but very considered, very thoughtful, very respectful, I would say, of its context at Tate Britain. Uh, it's rooted in tradition, in history. There are shades of William Blake here. There's a bit of John Martin. Uh, and so this is a work that, that lives and breathes beautifully uh, in these galleries, I think. The Turner Prize, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash arts. Flights will be heavily taxed, and there'll be no expansion of Britain's regional airports if airlines are to meet tough targets on carbon emissions. That's what the Influential Committee on Climate Change warns today in a new report. With the details is our transport correspondent, Dan Milmo. What it means is that you can have new runways at Heathrow, a new runway at Stansted, and a new runway at Edinburgh. After that, no new runways anywhere else, and also really keeping regional airports at their current levels of uh, passenger use. You can't even fly more people from, say, Manchester, Newcastle, Bristol, Luton, Gatwick even, than you do currently. Why can't you expand regional airports? and Why Heathrow and not Leeds, Manchester, whatever? Well, the, the Committee on Climate Change does make clear it's not their choice. This is government policy. You could see the uh, government of the day saying, well, this is all about reducing carbon. Heathrow is a long-haul airline airport. So why not limit growth there, because that emits so much carbon, letting it grow, and let the, the short-haul airports like Luton, indeed Gatwick, Stansted as well, actually, grow instead? What's been the reaction to this report from environmental campaigners? Thus far, they seem very encouraged. I suppose that they have to be as positive as possible, because this does say the rate of growth needs to be halved. So their primary response is that the government's aviation white paper, which was produced six years ago and is the the cornerstone of, of airport expansion policy, needs to be rewritten. And that's undoubtedly true. That policy catered for huge growth in passenger numbers. What the Climate Change Committee is saying is is we need much less. So the environmental lobby is is very pleased with this. But I personally am quite surprised that the Climate Change Committee has said, yeah, in theory, you can expand uh, the UK's largest airport. Dan Milmo. Today, the state of Ohio is due to begin using an experimental drug for its lethal injections as it administers the death penalty. Ed Pilkington has the details. Well, barring last-minute stays of execution, and, and as is the way with these things in America, you can have surprises right up to the very last second, it will, this morning, put to death uh, a prisoner in Ohio, but using, for the very first time in, in, in terms of the whole country, a simple one-drug method 
uh, of putting the prisoner to death, which is, in essence, a huge overdose of an anesthetic called thiopental sodium. And this is an experimental technique, which has never been done before, which would, for the first time, no longer use the most common form of lethal injection, the three-drug cocktail that's been used up to now in the 35 states that still practice the death penalty here. Because it followed an unsuccessful attempt by Ohio to execute a murderer called Rommel Broom. Yeah, an absolutely gruesome event in September where this prisoner spent two hours on the gurney where they were trying to find a vein. I mean, the three-drug cocktail relies on you having a vein where you can have an IV put into it, and then you get the three separate drugs put through the IV into your body. The first anesthetizes you, the second paralyzes you, and the third stops your heart. That's how the three-drug cocktail works. They couldn't find a vein in this this man's body. So over two hours they tried to to do it. Uh, In the end, they gave up. They couldn't do it, and the governor gave a fairly unique day of execution uh, and he was sent back to death row. Now no one quite knows what will happen to this particular prisoner because no one knows whether you can be executed twice, as it were. What do opponents of the death penalty say about Ohio's use of this, this drug that's never been used before to, to execute someone? Well, on the one hand, you could say it's, it has the potential to be more humane. The problem with the three-drug cocktail it was that if you don't get anesthetised properly you then have excruciatingly painful drugs that paralyze you and you're still conscious. And that has been known to happen um, in in horrific cases. So a massive overdose, I mean, the worst that can happen in a sense is, you you know, you're not sufficiently put over the edge, but even so you'll be fast asleep. So it has potential to be less cruel and inhumane. But on the other hand, and this is what the protesters are saying, Essentially what's going on here today is human experimentation. This is something that's never been done before. They're trying it out on the human for the first time, and no one really can put their hand on the hearts and say they're certain what will come out of it. So uh, that's a fairly extreme uh, and fairly critical uh, um, criticism of what's going to be happening today. And who's the unfortunate individual in question? It's this guy called Kenneth Barros, and uh, opponents of the death penalty think he's been carefully chosen to be the first guinea pig, as it were. He is, by all accounts, absolutely horrific and horrifying uh, murderer. He's accused of having uh, raped, tortured, murdered, and then dismembered a girl about uh, 15 years ago and scattered her body around the state. So, you know, you couldn't choose a more heinous crime, and that's people think is no coincidence because the likelihood of a sort of public outcry over this is is minimal because he's so sort of widely hated. Ed Pilkington reporting. Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening.